Thanks for letting us do this. It's, it's a blessing. I, there's so much, honestly, that I wish we could spend time telling you about. And the last several weeks, we've been able to talk about this. And we're trying to find different venues to make sure that you know what God is doing. And it's a blessing, I hope, I trust uh, that it is for you. We're going to be in John chapter 16. John chapter 16. I want us to start in verse 12, John chapter 16. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. If you are able to join us last week, we spent a significant amount of time talking about God the Holy Spirit. We talked about the third person of the Godhead. Just as much God as God the Son. And as Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure, he was assuring them that God would remain with them. In fact, he makes a statement, even back in verse 7, that at face value is hard to believe. In verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, Jesus says. The disciples are about to face hardship. Jesus has predicted his death. He said, as he has been hated by the world, they too would have been hated by the world. And so, this difficulties, these difficulties that are to come, they're not only from the outside world, but they're also from within. And so, to make them perhaps feel better about the difficulties, he says, and I am going away. Why would that make them feel better? Why would that be a step of preparation for them? Wouldn't Jesus being there all along the way be the best scenario? I mean, in fact, what happens when Jesus even is confronted by the Roman guard later on that evening? What do the disciples do? They scatter. They go to their own homes. They abandon him. If that's the way they're going to act while he's there, what's going to happen when he's not? Do you remember when Jesus was born? And the angel declared that his name would be Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Well, if Jesus isn't there, does that mean God is not with us? And what about us? What about those of us who never have seen Jesus? That our understanding of him really is through his word. And through those who have taught his word. 
How can Jesus say, it is better for me to go away unless we really understand who it is that is coming after him? That is God the Spirit. Last week, we talked about the role of God the Spirit. In particular, how God the Spirit glorifies God the Son. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. In the preaching of his word, the declaration of the gospel, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. And also the Holy Spirit empowers the messengers, those apostles who would declare that message of the gospel. We also saw last week that the Holy Spirit is doing a work in the world, convicting them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But today, I want to continue to look at the Holy Spirit throughout the rest of the New Testament and really look at this question. How does the rest of the New Testament describe the Spirit's activity for us, the church? And then ultimately, to be able to answer that question, why is it good for Jesus to have gone? Well, we see, first of all, that as Jesus describes himself, and as he describes his activity, he describes his activity for the church both corporately and also individually. What he does corporately, we see in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to be using the slides here because several of these slides have scripture passages. We're going to be looking at several passages of scripture. And as we look at this, I wanted to, to, to cite these passages uh, there will be lots of turning back and forth in your text. And you're welcome to, to turn there. But what I want to do is I want us to look at the passages of Scripture that speak of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of the church even now. What he's doing corporately and then what he's doing individually. What he's doing corporately, first of all, is that we as Christians, if you're in Christ, you've been baptized by the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you've been baptized by the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? That simply means that this is the placing of the Christian into the church, which is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. For by one Spirit we were baptized, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. What is being said here? Well, first of all, as I mentioned before, this is corporate. All Christians are placed into one body. And this placement is not an experience. We don't need to pray for this to happen again and again. No, this happened at salvation. It's a reality performed by Christ through the Spirit. You have been baptized by the Spirit. It's a one-time act. And once we are saved, we do not need to pursue it any further. Not only that... But this is something that is unique to the church. What do we mean by that? Well, it's unique to the church from the standpoint of this passage says both Jew and Gentile. The church consists not of an ethnic group, but of a body of believers, Jew and Gentile. This is significant going forward. And ultimately, this is the basis for our unity and our love for one another. So corporately, if you are in Christ, you have been placed into his body, the body of believers. And not only that, those around you have also been placed into that body. 
You had no choice in the matter for them to be placed in the body. And they had no choice for you to be placed in the body. But that is significant, especially given what it is the Holy Spirit does individually. So what the Holy Spirit does corporately, he baptizes us in the Spirit. But what does he do individually? Well, first of all, he regenerates. He regenerates us. In John chapter 3, we saw Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. And he says, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. What he does for each Christian is that he gives spiritual life to us when we were spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But in verse 5 it says you have been made alive in him. The spirit is part of that. The spirit regenerates the life of a Christian. What else does the spirit do? The spirit indwells us. He indwells us in that he permanently abides in all true believers. We also see the Spirit sealing us and acting as a spiritual down payment, guaranteeing our final salvation. In Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14, it says, In Christ you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view of redemption to God, of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. He guarantees our final salvation. And he fills us. He fills us in the sense that he controls our behavior when we yield to him and obey. It's not showing up on this little slide here. That's why I have to turn and talk about it. It's like, it's there. He fills us in that he controls our behavior when we yield to him and obey. Some of you might have a beverage uh, uh, cup with you right now. Is the Holy Spirit filling, kind of like filling that beverage cup? Like, you're partway full today, but man, I need the Holy Spirit to fill me up. No, that's not what's being talked about. When a person accepts Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells them, they have as much of the Holy Spirit as they ever will have. You do not need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you in the sense that you're somehow lacking him. Nor do we need to invite him here. If he indwells you, he's there. So what does this mean when we say he fills us? Well, this filling again is something that is done that we're told to do. And it's not something that we have done passively. Meaning, I wait for the Holy Spirit to kind of come on me. And, 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 and it just happens. No. We're told to be filled with the Spirit. And we're told to walk by the Spirit. So what does this mean? This means by yielding and submitting to God's Word, the Spirit will have greater influence on our day-to-day -day living. And we will respond by welcoming that control over our thoughts, our desires, and our actions. Being filled with the Spirit is obedience. And yielding to the Spirit's control. That doesn't mean I let go of the wheel and... You know, God just kind of takes it. No. But what I know to be true from God's word, I yield to that truth. I submit to its authority. And in doing so, the Spirit then controls what I do and controls what I say. 
so that what I do and what I say actually reflect him and glorify Jesus Christ. That's the filling of the Holy Spirit. The control, not mindless uh, robotic control, but willingly submitting to what God says in his word and then having him empower me to do it. He fills us. He controls us. And then he also produces fruit in us, which is evidence of the Spirit's control of our behavior. You might be familiar with this passage, Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against things there is no law. This process of filling and fruit-bearing really can be summed up in progressive sanctification. Something that the Spirit is responsible for. Over time and through the Spirit, we're changed so that we are becoming more like Christ. Now in this passage here in John chapter 16, we see especially the fruits of love. We're told to love one another. We see joy. Let's look here in John 16, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. Now, consider the circumstances there. They were going through hardship and would experience more hardship. The world might hate them. Jesus was going away. And yet, what was the Spirit going to be bringing about in their lives? Joy. We also see peace here at the end of this chapter. Or the end of, yeah, at the end of this chapter here. Verse 32. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribu tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. You see, fruit bearing by the Holy Spirit is often in spite of the immediate circumstances. This is why it's called the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of nice people. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are produced when circumstances would work against those things. When our environment actually discourages the expression of love, joy, peace, patience. It, it, it's, it's contrary. And yet the Holy Spirit, indwelling the life of the believer, enables him or her to bring about those fruit. Giving evidence of salvation. Glorifying the change that Christ has made in that person's life. And then next, the Holy Spirit gifts us by energizing a God-given ability so that the body of Christ may be edified. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. 
Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one given the man, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you've studied these gifts, perhaps you've discussed them. Often these gifts are categorized by speaking gifts and serving gifts. And there is a variety of these gifts that the Spirit gives. Regardless... The one giving us these gifts is God the Spirit. And each one of us, when we are saved, will be gifted in at least one way to where God will use that gift through us to build up each other and glorify Jesus Christ. So we see what the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of believers individually. We see what he's doing in the life of, or the body, corporately. But again, I would ask, why is Jesus leaving earth a better situation than if he stayed. Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus was the pastor of Grace Church of Menor? I'm dead serious. Wouldn't it be nice if Jesus was the one teaching our children in the back right now? Wouldn't it be nice, have you ever thought about this, about like, you know, the person or the people that God brings into your life and you feel so inadequate and it's like, Man, if I just had, like, someone else, wouldn't it be great if Jesus could just be right there and speak? I mean, when Jesus preached, he never had to regret things that came out of his mouth. Oh. Right? When Jesus ministered, he never had to second guess. I, I mean, everything he did was perfect. Everything was... It was God, Right? You know what Jesus would say if he were here? Say, actually, no, it wouldn't be better if I was the pastor of this church. Actually, no, it wouldn't be better if I was back teaching those children. Actually, no, it wouldn't be better if I were there instead of you talking to the people that have been providentially allowed into your life. Jesus would say no. I would say it sure would be. He would say no. And that's where what we need, what I need to do is come, okay, if you say no, if this is what you're saying, it's better for you to go away, then how can that be? How can that be? Well, I'd like to submit two reasons. First of all, by Jesus going away, we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a fuller way. We have the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a fuller way. What do we mean? Because Jesus, having gone away, you know what's true? His work on the cross is done. He's completed his work here on earth and that he has died making a payment for our sin. He's conquered not only sin but death. He is the first fruits of the resurrection for those of us who believe. And now he has ascended into heaven and he has been glorified. And so the Holy Spirit then magnifies that completed work of Jesus Christ. We aren't settling for the Holy Spirit. We have the third person of the Godhead, equally God and eternally God, unified with God the Father and the Son, living in you, living in us. 
because you can't see the Holy Spirit the same way that the disciples could see Jesus, it can seem that we're somehow less privileged. I mean, doesn't Jesus actually tell Thomas, hey, you saw my hands and believed. Blessed are those who've never seen me and believed. He does say that, right? But his desire is the same, both for those disciples who have seen him and those who have not. Namely, to obey God's word. And he enables us to live a life that is controlled not by the things that we were once enslaved to, but instead giving evidence that he lives and controls in you. He controls us. The Holy Spirit serves to glorify Jesus and his completed work. And so we see this ministry of the Spirit in a fuller way, even when compared to Jesus in his earthly ministry. Now I want us to go back to John chapter 14 just for a moment. John chapter 14. Look in verse 11. He says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And look at this. And greater works than these he will do. Why? Because I go to the Father. We see the Holy Spirit working in a fuller way, and we enjoy his ministry in a fuller way. But secondly, we also see the church accomplishing even greater works than what Christ accomplished while on earth. And again, if Jesus isn't saying this himself, it would almost seem like blasphemous. But what does Jesus mean when he says in verse 12, greater works than these he, the one who believes in Christ, will do because he goes to the Father. What does he mean there? Well, though Jesus is not present with us, as we've said, he's glorified through the work of the Spirit. And these greater works... You could make the argument that, that he's talking about the miracles that the disciples would do, the apostles would do in affirming the gospel, but I'm not sure that that's what's being spoken of here. In the sense that Christ's work will be done through not only the apostles, but by all Christians, by the Holy Spirit, after he ascends to heaven. What Jesus started, Christians have been able to continue what was the scope of Jesus' ministry? I mean, when I say scope, who did he come to minister to? The lost sheep of Israel, right? That's what he says. I'm here to minister to Israel. What about his followers? What about the disciples? Where are they told to go? You'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, and then Judea and Samaria, and then the other most, uttermost parts of the earth. What is it that these greater works are? I don't believe it's the disciples performing greater miracles. I actually believe that there's a case to be made that through the power of the Holy Spirit carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ, now Christ could be glorified to the ends of the earth. Amen. That the message of the gospel would go forward and converts would be made. In fact, 
one such convert who was a hater of Jesus at one point in time. The Apostle Paul, or Saul. Who, when Jesus is saying, the world will hate you, Saul was part of that group. And Saul oversaw the martyrdom of the first martyr in the church, Stephen. And yet, God changes him and makes him into a proclaimer of the gospel. And Paul goes literally to the uttermost parts of the earth. And followers are made after him. And those followers are described as having turned the world upside down. Let's look at Acts chapter 2 very quickly. Acts 2. Verse 32. This is the day of Pentecost. The disciples are preaching the word in tongues that were not native to them, but were native to many in attendance. And so these listeners were hearing the preaching of the gospel in their own language. And Jesus, or I'm sorry, and Peter begins to preach, and in verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we were all witnesses. Verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. This is the product of the Spirit. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Speaking to a group of thousands, you killed the Messiah. And how did they respond? Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter says to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the for forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. What happens? So then... Those who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Amen. There were 3,000 miracles that took place in that the Holy Spirit regenerated these individuals, people who were responsible for the killing of the Messiah. They were saved. They were added to the church. In Jesus' ministry, we have him healing many, preaching to many. But here, in, Paul's, in, in Peter's preaching, we have an affirmation that 3,000 souls came to Christ that day. And what is it that we're doing now? Let's fast forward 2,000 years. But not too fast, because let's think of all the Christians that have proclaimed the name of Christ up until this point. 
If it were up to us, well, let me say it differently. Since it's up to the Lord and his plan, we are the ones that have been tasked with this message. We are the ones that have been given gifts to work out our salvation for the building up of Christ's church. Jesus, as we heard earlier, is the chief shepherd, and one day he will rule and reign in person here on earth as king. We can't wait for that day, right? But if Jesus were here, today's elder meeting would look a lot like what it's going to look like. Tonight's children's ministry meeting would look an awful lot like what it's going to look like from the standpoint of Jesus wouldn't come in and co-opt it. No, the Holy Spirit is working through the lives of those people. He's doing his work. And so as Pastor Steve describes even the selection, even the discussion on, on having leadership chosen, what seems to be good, there's individuals who are filled with the Holy Spirit trying to honor God's word and doing the best that they can. And God sees fit to have that be his plan. Amen. But here's, here's the part that we have to remember. We're sinners. Jesus wasn't. So we have the Holy Spirit, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like that, that really sloppy painter. You know, that sloppy painter that, that, that gets paint on their hands, or maybe they get the paint on the drop cloth and they walk on it, and then everywhere they go, they track paint behind them. That's the way we are with our sin. Everywhere I go, I leave my fingerprints of sin because I'm a sinner. Even though I have the Holy Spirit, you're the same way if you're in Christ. Yes, you've been regenerated. Yes, you've been, you're being indwelled. Yes, you've filled by the Spirit. Yes, you have the fruits of the Spirit. Yes, you have gifts of the Spirit. But guess what? We're also sinners. And so as all of these things are exercised and lived out, we also have them done imperfectly. So you know what that means? It means that Jesus gets to define spiritual productivity. It means that what happens as Christ builds his church is that he's doing something, but he's doing them through fallen instruments that have been saved by grace and are very much works in progress. And that's not just true of you. That's true of all the people around you as well. So that the Spirit comes and uses people and changes people, but in many ways, uses them in spite of themselves. It's not just all God and no, nothing of us. No, we're growing, we're being used, but we're fallible. So can you understand why when, when Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, love one another, he's talking about the relationship of believer with believer, knowing that the dynamic is going to change pretty significantly in multiple ways. First of all, he's not going to be there. Second of all, there's going to be a new group of individuals coming together. Jew and Gentile, baptized in the Spirit. Do you think that was a heavy lift for the early church? Were people who were accustomed to worshiping a certain way and then all of a sudden you have people that were never really included now are included? And you have your identity not be your ethnicity? 
but who you are in Jesus Christ? Think that was a heavy lift? It's a heavy lift now. Think about all the diversity that's in this room. I was talking with an elder a couple weeks ago, and he was you know, talking about you know, salvation and talking about um, you know, just when he was saved and, and uh, alluding to the fact that you know, what I was at the age of 20 is not who I am right now. And if we could take a snapshot of who we were perhaps earlier pre-salvation and say, this is what Jesus is going to use to build the church. Would we believe it? And yet, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. That's exactly what happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we enjoy the works of the Holy Spirit, but we also enjoy others who have the works of the Holy Spirit too. And at the end of the day, this is where our peace must come from. Because we have the Holy Spirit, we're able to see the gospel of Jesus spread. We're able to see his church being built and matured. And we're able to give God glory all around the world, even in the face of difficulty. So as we read there at the end of John 16, verse 33, In me you may have peace. We want to find peace in so many other things. But in this world, we'll have difficulty. If you're a Christian, you will face opposition from the outside world. You will find sin within your heart and within even this body of believers. But we must find peace in Christ in our hearts when our hearts are troubled by what we see out there and by what we see in here and what we see even inside ourselves. The Holy Spirit should be convincing us of the truth. He has overcome the world. So, we look at the disciples. We look at their circumstances. We look at the promise of the Holy Spirit and the promise that's true of us today. So, I close here by really looking at what Jesus said at the end of verse 33. <clears throat> In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Why should we take courage? Because in Christ, we should have peace. Where is your peace found? Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not worry. If you've ever played that game Jenga, you know, those wood pegs, you take out one peg at a time. A lot of times we figure out, you know, just how sturdy, you know, the, the tower is. You know, when you take out the top ones, that's not that big of a deal. When you start taking out the bottom ones, ooh, it starts to rock. Okay? We ask that question about where our peace is found. Sometimes we figure out where our peace is found when the, the certain things are actually removed from our life, kind of like those Jenga pieces. So God starts poking, and he takes one of those pegs out, maybe the peg of financial security. Your peace is found in financial security. He takes that out. Maybe finding it as success in your career, fulfillment in your career. Maybe he pokes that peg. Maybe stable family. He pokes that peg out. Sometimes we figure out what exactly our peace is in when we no longer have that peg in our lives. 
peace must be found in Christ. If our peace is found in our environment or things or stuff or success or safety, then we have a peace that the world offers. What Christ is saying is, find peace in me. Amen. And that is found and manifested through the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's been a lot of theology about what the Spirit does, but at the end of the day, this theology trickles down into how you and I interact and how we really wake up every morning. Why we do what we do and how we do it with each other. May God give us a greater thankfulness, but a greater also uh, understanding of what the Spirit has done and is doing in the lives of one another. And as we do, we'll not only just grow individually, but we'll grow in unity. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We've covered a lot of, a lot of material. But Lord God, as we are a body of believers here, Help us, Lord, to walk in a way that reflects truth. Lord, as we look at, as we have looked at the Spirit, and as we've looked at what Christ has instructed, Father, I ask that you might help us to, to not just understand it and acknowledge it as true, but Lord, have it translate into our lives especially as it relates to the circumstances of our life and the things that so, then can so easily upset us. Father, give us spiritual stability. But Lord, also give us empathy and love for one another because of those who are having difficulty. That as we come and as we worship with one another, this isn't just us and our own personal walk with you, but Lord, this is something that we've all enjoyed. We've all been baptized by the Spirit. We've all been placed into this body. We're in Christ. And so as a result, we all enjoy certain things. And frankly, we should be enjoying those fruits of the Spirit from one another and with one another. Help us, Lord, to be mindful of the souls that we worship with. Help us to be thankful for the one who enables us to be unified together. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.